This podcast is brought to you by Label Sessions, the global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people. In this exclusive series, entrepreneur and creative leader Andy Norman takes us through his views on creativity, curiosity, and guts. To find out more about Andy, listen to the Q&A listed in the show notes. To find out more about Label Sessions, visit labelsessions.com. Welcome back to CCNG, the podcast that tests your knowledge and sometimes your patience, I suppose. Our first question today is worth five points. Can you figure out what these seemingly diverse 17 materials have in common? Listen carefully. Glass, hard rubber, aluminum foil, parchment, pitch, leather, chamois, cloth, silk, a $5 bill, Ivory, birch bark, a pig's bladder, mica, I don't even know what that is, rawhide, gelatin, and fish guts. Hmm, I'll give you a few seconds to ponder. Okay, if you got this one, frankly, you deserve 10 points, maybe even 20. The answer? Starting in 1877, these 17 materials, albeit not in this exact order, these 17 materials were used by Thomas Edison in an attempt to convert sound waves into electric impulses in a series of laborious experiments to come up with a better telephone transmitter. Edison was famous for saying, negative results are just what I want. They're as valuable to me as positive results. But 17 swings and misses? Yikes! Be careful what you wish for, Thomas Alva. Edison's vantage point is not an easy one. Au contraire, it's quite a queasy one. And it takes a special person just to deal with this negative vantage point, let alone masochistically welcome it. Yeah, I just said masochistically. Because that's how I define resilience, not just being impervious to the pain that business brings, but looking forward to dealing with it. Luckily, resilient people don't have to be born that way. They can be made. And here's how you can be one of them. First off, resilient people make use of a trio of defensive weapons, which I like to call the shields of dreams. They are extra thick rhino skin to deflect stones, arrows, bullets, and anything else the world throws at you. Earplugs to distractors to block out the brayers and the naysayers. And blinders to distractions to maintain a laser beam focus. Using these three shields of dreams simultaneously enables resilient people to pay attention to what's really important, namely the battle ahead. Because resilient people realize that no matter what, there will be a battle. <laughs> Make no mistake, there's always a battle, especially when you're trying to institute change or create something new. Whether it's the competition, the status quo, the rules, societal norms, nothing but nothing ever changes or is created without some sort of knockdown, drag out battle. Even if you're working in a harmonious tandem with other people and or teams, you will always be battling someone to get your point, your idea, or your decision across. Heed the words then of the great philosopher Bugs Bunny, who used to say this when smacked down, Of course you know, this means war. 
and not just any war, because resilient people realize what they're up against is usually lopsided and not tilted in their favor. A battle indeed, and mostly uphill. Now, let me explain with yes, 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 yet another pertinent story. In 1999, I co-founded a company called Airborne Entertainment with my friend Garner Bornstein. Airborne was a true trailblazer in the nascent mobile media space. At the time, back in 1999, not only were cell phone screens the size of large postage stamps, they were monochrome green with black dots assembled to construct the most basic of words and images. Despite these limitations, we told anyone who would listen, and many who wouldn't listen, we told them that one day people will watch television on these things. The response, when not ridicule, was outright derision. I still remember one meeting in 2001. We were looking for financing, and the VC sitting in front of us pulled out a bar chart from the Yankee Group. It was a powerful market researcher and consultant of the era. The chart he pulled out was titled, Willingness to Pay for Mobile Data. It said that about 10% of North Americans were willing to pay about $5 a month for mobile data. About 8% said they would pay between $5 and $10. About 4% said between $11 and $20. And perhaps half a percent would pay $20 a month. The largest answer, by a gaping wide margin, was 67% of people who said they'd be willing to pay absolutely nothing. Uh, that's $0 per month. So after throwing this in our face, the VC kind of sneered. Why would we invest in a business that close to 70% of people are willing to pay nothing for? Well, we left that meeting kind of crushed, but still wouldn't let ourselves be terminally deterred by the VC or his report. We concluded that the VC was an arsehole and the report was wrong. I mean, it was either that or fold up the tent, which we weren't going to do. Four years later, though, the Yankee Group was sold for $30 million dollars. One year after that, we sold Airborne Entertainment for over $100 million. That's more than three times the value of those damn Yankees. We still don't know what ever happened to that VC who pulled out the report. And finally, don't you wish you only had to pay $20 a month for your mobile data plan these days? Moral of this story? Despite Airborne's win, it was ultimately not about success or failure. It was about being resilient enough to stay in the game whatever came our way. But enough sweet revenge nostalgia. Let's backtrack a bit to CCNG podcast episode number five, where we discovered the myth of change, namely, everybody loves change as long as someone else does it first. Despite that, things must change, and someone somewhere will eventually take the necessary first step to change things. And no matter what they do, Part of the change process is the possibility of failure and the ensuing criticism. And as in the Airborne story, what ultimately separates the winners from the losers is not the winning or the losing. It's how they deal with the times, with the people, and with the inevitability of things not going exactly as planned. As someone well, well versed in this game, Mark Zuckerberg has said, Optimists tend to be successful and pessimists tend to be right. If you think something's going to be terrible and it's going to fail, then you're going to look for the data points that prove you right. And you'll find them. That's what pessimists do. But if you think something is possible, then you're going to find a way to make it work. 
And Sarah Blakely is someone who found a way to make it work. She created and launched the unique shaping underwear called Spanx back in 2001. A self-made billionaire, Sarah is the poster child for optimism and business masochism. As she explains... The two biggest fears humans fear of failure and fear of being embarrassed, and they're connected. The more that we work to free ourselves up from caring so much about what other people think, the freer we'll be from both. I intentionally try to embarrass myself. I really don't want it to own me. If I make embarrassing myself the goal, then it just flips the whole thing on its head. Even when it's flipped on its head, the concept of what other people think is still tough as nails. Worse yet, is that it manifests itself in a piercing bell chime called rejection. If this bell rings in your ears to the point of madness, <laughs> you're toast. But if you use it as a wake-up call, you may be like the five following reformed rejects. Reject number one, Stephen King. King's first book, Carrie, was rejected by a whopping 30 publishers. When it was finally acquired, his advance was a measly $2,500. Now, total sales of all Stephen King books today, over 400 million copies. Reject number two, Dr. Seuss. The beloved children's author's first book, entitled And to Think That I Saw It on Mulberry Street, was also rejected by 30 publishers. I wonder what it is with these 30 guys. Anyway, total sales of all Dr. Seuss books today, over 600 million. Reject number three, J.K. Rowling. Let's put all the recent gender politics about J.K. aside and focus on her first book, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. It was rejected by only 12 publishers. Obviously, publishers were getting smarter later on. Her advance when it was acquired by publisher number 13, $2,200. Total sales of all Harry Potter books today, over 500 million. But enough authors. Reject number four is inventor James Dyson. Well, actually, this is a quote from a review from his book, Invention, A Life. So I guess he can qualify here as an author, but I digress. It took Mr. Dyson four years and precisely 5,127 prototypes to develop his bagless dual cyclone vacuum cleaner. He points out that his perseverance, abetted by subsequent and continuing failures in the form of rebuffs from the likes of banks, venture capitalists, government agencies, manufacturers, distributors and retailers, was rewarded with ultimate success. The idea of accepting and even enjoying failure but going on is a theme carried throughout Mr. Dyson's book. And finally, reject number five, Steve Jobs. Or more specifically, if you can believe it, the iPhone. Yeah, before it became one of the best-selling products of all time, these were some of the early comments and reviews of the iPhone. In England, the Guardian newspaper said, there is a low demand for a converged all-in-one device. Microsoft CEO Steve Ballmer said, it doesn't appeal to business customers because it doesn't have a keyboard. Well, what did you expect him to say? We'll give the last word to Bloomberg Businessweek, who called the iPhone nothing more than a luxury bubble that will appeal to a few gadget freaks. Released in 2008, Apple sold its one billionth iPhone way back in 2016, and it's still the core of Apple's amazing worldwide business. So rejection, as you see in all its forms, is just part of the process. And because it's a process, the reason for rejection changes over time. Back to Steve Jobs, 
Some of the initial problems the iPhone faced was not because of the phone itself, but because of the lack of infrastructure strong enough to support such a transformational product. In an article in the Globe and Mail newspaper, columnist Gus Carlson put it succinctly, The telecommunications infrastructure back then simply did not have the bandwidth for everyone to have a mini computer in their pockets. Who else faced that problem? Well, there was Henry Ford, whose initial launch of the Model T stalled because of the lack of proper roadways to drive them on. And despite the popularity of the Tesla, Elon Musk and his electric car manufacturing brethren still have to deal with an electricity infrastructure that's not optimized for an exponential increase in plug-in vehicles. So facing rejection is a phenomenon that's not static, but progressive. It moves with you and often has more to do with the state of the world around you than anything that you've done. So how do you deal with it? Well, first of all, if the world is against you, you've got to make it your enemy. Like the sappy old Helen Reddy song, it's you and me against the world. You and me against the world. Sometimes it feels like you and me. In fact, establishing an enemy status works no matter who your detractors are, be they micro or macro. In fact, establishing an enemy status works no matter who your detractors are, be they macro or micro. One of my favorite examples of this is Andrea Illy's reaction to Starbucks first opening up in Italy. Illy, the president of the iconic Italian coffee company that bears his family name, was asked if the arrival of Starbucks would change Italy's coffee culture. His response... With all due respect, it hasn't led to any significant changes in the coffee culture. Maybe for some young people these have become gathering places. Some tourists might like to go there. Yikes, that's cold. Yep, as Bugs Bunny said, this means war. Another way to deal with rejection is to meet it with disbelief. No matter what the setback, Put yourself in an incredulous mindset. Surely the solution is just around the corner. Surely the judge, the critic, or the evidence is wrong. To counter book reviewer criticism of her magnum opus, Atlas Shrugged, libertarian author Ayn Rand herself shrugged. I did think I'd get more intelligent smears. Never mind the critics, Rand dissed society itself by saying. The whole state of culture suddenly appears much worse than I had ever imagined. So flip a coin. Heads, you're right. Tails, they're wrong. But to end this podcast in the poetic, profound manner this subject deserves, we leave the last words to columnist Gus Carlson once again. Too often the purveyors of conventional wisdom focus on and gripe about the wrong things, and in the process, jeopardize the success of ideas that can change the world. Innovators have always been at the mercy of mere mortals and the earthbound hurdles they fear aren't conquerable. Mic drop! Before I go, if you dug what you heard, or if you hated it, let me know at Label Sessions on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, or LinkedIn. And, 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 although I know I shouldn't, I will read every comment and promise to respond to those without spelling, grammar, punctuation, or other such nagging errors. So, until next episode, CC and G you later. This podcast is brought to you by Label Sessions, the global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people. Around the world, we work with brands to connect their people to true leaders, just like the people you hear on this podcast, for live sessions of advice, mentorship, or sometimes to collaborate on ideas. 
To find out more, visit labelsessions.com and book in for a demo with our team.